0: Just open your Bible again to Luke chapter 13, it'll help to follow the things that we will look at, but just as you open your Bibles to that passage, let us turn to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as we open your word, we realize that we come to your word, the eternal word. We thank you, Father, that this is not any word, this is not man's word. And so we turn to you and ask for help that as we look at it, read it, ponder on it, for the help of your Holy Spirit, because your word cannot be discerned in our own understanding, in our own wisdom, in our own flesh, it can be only discerned by your Spirit. And so we ask for help that each one of us would not only hear, but Lord, we would have the help to understand, to see your word as you have spoken it and how that might apply to my life, what you're saying. So, Lord, you know each one of us. We're different. We have different needs. We have different levels of understanding. Lord, nothing escapes your gaze. And so help us now. As we read in your word, he who hears. And so, Lord, we, we long that each one of us would hear, would understand, would, would obey. And so we ask for your help now as we do this. Amen. Amen. Can we just note a where and to who and what has already been said? in the lead up to the passage that we've read in in Luke chapter 13. You'll notice that in verse 1, Luke records that there were present at that season. And so we sort of think to ourselves, well, at what season? And I wonder if we could go back to chapter 12 and verse 1 and see that there it records that in the meantime when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all. And then chapter 13 says there were present at that season. So I wonder if we can go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and see and understand that this is the season. It's a continuation of this time. But I just wonder as well, maybe we could... Even go back to chapter 11 and verse 37. And I just throw it out there. Look, maybe it's also a continuation from then. Because there it says, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And then it verse, chapter 12 and verse 1 says, In the meantime. And then chapter 13 and verse 1 says, They were present at that season. So anyway, I wonder if that's where we are. It's a continuation from that. Why did I mention that? Well, if you read that whole passage from chapter 11, verse 37, right through to now, you will find that there was a great crowd there. And in that crowd, there was a mixture of a lot of different people. We know there were the disciples. You'll read of the Pharisees being there. And you'll read of a multitude of ordinary people were gathered there as well. And so there was a great mixture of the people that were there at present at that season. Not only was there a mixture of people in maybe social standing, but there would have been a mixture, no doubt, in their opinions of the Lord Jesus. A mixture of what they were wanting to hear from the Lord Jesus and expecting him to do. But the question is, as you read that that passage through, even right through to verse 9 that we've read this morning in chapter 13, the, the question is, were they really listening? They were gathered there, the Lord Jesus spoke many different things, but were they listening? Let me point out just in chapter 12 alone that Christ made many pointed statements to the crowd that were gathered. And no doubt these statements were made seeking to hit home to the core need of the many who were gathered in that crowd. We notice at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 12 that he makes a pointed statement of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He points that out. We notice in verses 4 to 6 that he makes a a pointed statement in who they were truly to fear and who they were truly to trust. We notice in verses 13 to 21, he makes a pointed statement on the importance of the soul, which is eternal over the the importance of riches which will pass away, which will mean nothing in the light of eternity. Because when the rich man, the rich farmer died, the rich fool died, he, he left all behind him. That's what it says. In verses 49 to 53, we notice he makes a pointed statement in breaking the false idea. That they had of himself. We know they wanted to make him king. They thought he was coming to bring in the kingdom. There and then to, to defeat the Romans. That, that were lording it over them and so forth. But he breaks that false assumption. And then in verses 54 to 56 we notice. Again he comes back to make an appointed statement. On the, the hypocrisy of the people, you know how that might paint a, a picture of many in the world today. These pointed statements. There's no doubt that in the world today we see a lot of hypocrisy. Sadly, in those who are even in authority, in those who are in trusted positions, we see sadly today that there are many putting, there, fearing the, the wrong people or the wrong things. They are putting their trust in, in the wrong places. We see people more worried about their riches, their financial status, than worrying what's going to happen after this life when they, when they leave this scene of time. We see sadly so many who have wrong opinions of the Lord Jesus, of God himself, of his word. And we see sadly that such hypocrisy again in in the day and age that that we live in. And so, you know, I asked that question, were they really listening? Were they really taking in? They came, yes, to Jesus, but were they really listening? Were they really looking deeper? Or or did they just continue to look at the, the superficial Were they examining themselves when the Lord Jesus made these pointed statements? Were they looking at the real need that was in their their hearts and life? Were they looking to the only one who could answer that need? You know, it's interesting that after the Lord Jesus made all these pointed statements, these plain truths, and many more, I pointed just a few out, that in chapter 13, he then mentions two specific things twice. He he talks about repent and perish. Now, repent and perish, he mentions twice in verse 13. After saying all what he already has said, there may be two things that I expect wouldn't have been on the radar of the the, the crowd that had gathered around the Lord Jesus at that time. The Pharisees, they were religious. They were concerned in how they could carry out their religious acts, their their religious rituals. They were more concerned in, in making people... almost hold them in high reverence because they could keep the law or or supposedly they could keep the law but the the people couldn't. And they were more uh, concerned about religion. Sadly, they were worshipping the things which ought to have pointed them to worship the Almighty, God himself. But sadly, they were worshipping idols, really. Worshipping themselves. We see the people, we see that they were probably more concerned with how they were going to get by. Many of them struggling financially, struggling in physical needs. They probably wanted to be free from being under the burden of Roman occupation. And so these things repent And perish that the Lord Jesus mentions twice in in our passage in verse 13 is probably way, way far from their minds. And I wonder today if we went out in the street this morning and we went up to someone and said, you know, you're perishing, you need to repent. Or if we put it another way, unless you repent, you will perish. I wonder what sort of reaction we would get. Well, I wonder some might just keep on walking. Some might turn around and tell you or tell us that we're mad. That's not relevant to them. But I would say there would be very few would stop and actually ask, oh, what do you mean? Before we notice three things in our passage, the Bible is clear that in sin we are all perishing. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are intellectual. Those who have been enlightened. Those who have moved on from uh, the Bible now being irrelevant. Is that what it says? No. The, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so the Bible is clear that in sin all are perishing. The greatest need of every one of us in this world is not financial need, it's not physical need, although important that might be, emotional needs as well. The most important need that we have to get sorted in our lives is that we be saved from God's judgment and condemnation because of our rebellion against him. Because of our sin. That is the greatest need of everyone. And that's what the message of the cross is all about. That the Lord Jesus there on the cross. He died for your sin and for mine. There on the cross he was taking on himself. The punishment that you and I deserve. The condemnation that we are already under. Because of our sin. And that is the message of the cross. We notice in chapter 12 and verse 50. That he actually. When he's t- dispelling the false idea. That the people had of him. He says in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am. Till it is accomplished. That was the, the suffering. The agony. That was before him on the cross. And why did he endure that? He endured that for you and for me. He was to go through that. He was to experience that. So that we would never have to. You know, that verse in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are sin. And therefore, to go and to tell somebody you need the Lord Jesus as Savior, they will say that's foolish. They say that because they're perishing. But the verse goes on to say this. But to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. And when we have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, we know the power of God in our lives. In that that we are no longer perishing, but we are now saved. And so we see three things in this passage. First of all, we notice man's perception of perishing. Man's perception of perishing. We notice at the beginning of the chapter that the Lord Jesus is responding You can either describe it as a statement or maybe it was a question. It says there that uh, that they told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, why did they ask this? What was their motive? When we've just thought about the pointed statements that the Lord Jesus has already made to this crowd... Why? Why did they then start to tell them about the blood of the Galileans that the Pilate had mingled with sacrifices? Well, I wonder were they really listening to the Lord Jesus? Were they? Well, let's just brush that aside. He made pointed statements. Maybe it stung. Maybe those who were living hypocritical lives. Maybe those who were more worried about the things in this world or finances. You know, maybe it. It convicted them, but they're like, oh, let, let's just brush that aside. Let, let, let's bring something else up. We, we don't know why. But what we do know is that some questions that were asked of the Lord Jesus were usually asked to, to catch him out. We see that at the end of, of chapter 11 in Luke. It says, and as he said these things uh, to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him Venomously and to cross examine about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. And so often these things were said in order to do that, but many a time the Lord Jesus responds in a way that they did not expect. And it's the same for us when we come to God's Word and we read something what it says we might not totally have expected been ready for. But yet what I do know and can say is that the response the Lord Jesus gives to whatever question or statement that is brought to him, he normally gets to the heart of the matter for which it's said. And we see that here in verse 2. They they told him about what had happened, these Galileans. And then he says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? And so was the heart of the matter this? That they, just as we, look on the outward. We make our judgments, our assumptions, so many times on the things that we see and we hear. And when we talk about people maybe perishing, sometimes we tend to differentiate those who maybe die peacefully, who who slip away from this life into eternity, from those who might die in some tragedy, disaster. There are those who have maybe died valiantly in a cause that we agree with and we will honor them and, and, and praise them. And yet maybe somebody else dies as valiantly in another cause that we don't agree with and, and we sort of question, well, you know, they died because of what they were involved in. There are people who will make statements like, oh, those people deserve that because... Or we, we might hear somebody dying tragically suddenly and some people might say, oh, well, the way they were living, well, that was only going to happen. And maybe it seems something similar here. Th- these, these people in the crowd, they're deflecting away from the, the pointed statements the Lord Jesus has made to them. And, and they start pointing, well, what about those people? Jesus challenges their perception of those who have died or perished. And Jesus challenges them with the question were these people truly greater sinners than you? Is it really important? Is it really the judgment to make on somebody how they've died? Does that sum up the sort of person they were? Does, does that clear you from being hypocritical? From, from not trusting God as you ought to? Or, or, or living your life for the things in this world? And not thinking about eternal things? Does that clear you from that? Listen, the Bible is, is more than clear. In Romans 5 verse 12. That death spread to all men. All Because all have sinned. The crowd here. Those in the crowd. Some of them seem to be more taken up. Why these people died. How they died. And therefore pointing out that. You can't be comparing us to them. But yet you know. We need to realize that. There is one who is in control. Of all things. We cannot control how we die. We cannot control when we die. Lo, we live in a world that seems to try to bring in certain things to prolong life. Almost as it were putting the thought of death uh, to, to the back. Let's not think about that. Let's make more drugs. Let's live in, in a more healthy way. Let's dispel of, of pollution and whatnot. And There's nothing wrong with that. But it's also almost the mindset that they can control how long they will live. And yet revelation reminds us of the Lord Jesus who said, I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And so our perception ought to change. To see it's what takes place beyond this life. It's what takes place after this time in eternity. It's not how a person dies or why they've died, but we need to look at ourselves what happens after we die. And so the question is what is it to perish? What is it to perish? Well, I need to read some verses at the end, toward the end of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Ultimately, for me, this answers that question. Revelation 20 and verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is not annihilation. This is the description of the agony, of the suffering of the punishment of all eternity in the lake of fire of those who are perishing unless they are saved in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. What has Jesus already said to the crowd in chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed. Has power to cast into hell. Yes I say to you. Fear him. And so we see the Lord Jesus here. Challenging man's perception. Of what it is to perish. We look in the outward. We make our judgment on that person. Maybe how life died. Why life died. And yet the Lord Jesus is pointing back. Are laid more a sinner than you? We notice, secondly, not only man's perception of perishing, but we see Christ's prescription to the perishing. Jesus is clear you will all likewise perish. He said it twice. But praise God this morning, he didn't leave it there. Because what we see is the Lord Jesus prescribing the remedy to those who are perishing. And what we notice is he also mentions this twice. And what's the, pres- the prescription to the perishing? He says, unless you repent. Repent. Well, if we were to ask somebody this morning on the street... After we had said to them, you know, you're, you need to repent uh, You need to, because you're perishing. I wonder if you asked them, well, how are you going to be saved from perishing? What their answer might be. I think very few would say, oh, I need to repent. And yet the Lord Jesus is emphatic here. Twice he says, unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. You know, this isn't something new. The vital importance of repentance, the need of it to be saved from perishing under the condemnation of sin is something that is reiterated throughout the Bible. And throughout the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, he too uh, reiterated that. Just to give you a couple of examples in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. The Lord Jesus it says there that Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We also notice just further on in Luke in Luke chapter twenty-four, verses forty six to forty-eight, the Lord Jesus himself said, Lus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remissions of sin should be preached in the name to all na- in, sorry, preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. we 're not to teach people they have to be morally good, they are to follow the good example of the good living Lord Jesus. No, we see that he preaches, He teaches that people are to repent. Well, what is repentance? What does that mean? Just let me read a few scriptures before uh, we just clarify the meaning of repentance. In Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 16, we get a, a, an understanding. It says, As I live, says the Lord God. Sorry. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6. I said 16. It's verse 6, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Again in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 30, says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. We see that in the Old Testament. There's many other passages, but we can go to the New Testament and see it tying up exactly the same in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then right toward the end of Acts In chapter 26 verses 19 and 20 Paul before Agrippa he says therefore King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent. Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So repentance, many times, is a turning away from, it's a turning to. Repentance is a total change of mind. It's a total change of will. It's a total change of direction. Let me sum up true repentance like this. True repentance is recognizing, is admitting that I am a sinner. I think it's clear from the crowd to which Jesus is speaking to. He made pointed statements. He, in a sense, spoke to their need. The sin that was in their heart that they were displaying in their lives and they didn't want to know it, they ignored it. And that can sum so many people up today. But the Bible is clear. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. True repentance is coming to admit I have sinned. I have rebelled against God. I have not met the standard that he has set that we see in the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. In him who was no sin. But it's more than saying sorry. Because many a time somebody might point out our, our wrongdoing and we say oh I'm sorry. And then turn around and go and do it very soon after. It's more than just saying sorry. It's admitting. It's recognizing. But we see it's turning from sin. And it's turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And no other. It is a turning to and trusting in what the Lord Jesus has done for you. And for me on the cross. The Bible's clear. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, whoever turns to him shall not perish. The Lord Jesus, in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he said, repent and believe in the gospel. Who is the gospel all about? The Lord Jesus It's all about him and no other. And so to repent, we read in those passages, they were to turn away from idols. They were to turn away from rebellion. They were to turn away from the direction in which they were going, which was opposite, away from God. We see that we are to turn, repent, and trust in Jesus. Turn to him. So true repentance is a recognizing that I am a sinner. It is turning to the Lord Jesus. But you know, true repentance we also see displays itself in that there is a change, a transformation that takes place in our life. No longer living in our own way. No longer living in what I want, in my will. No longer worshipping what we ought not to worship. But it's a total change. And that we have turned to him and we love him and we worship him and we follow him. Jesus didn't come, die, rise again from the dead, ascend to heaven. That we are automatically saved. No. The Lord Jesus says in Luke 5 verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance wonder, just as we come to the, the close of this second point, just, just, just to stop a minute, to pause, to think, to consider. Well, what's your perception on, on perishing? Are you just looking at this life? Are you just working your way until it's en- it's over and that's it, the end? Are you looking at others and thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm not as bad as them. But the Lord Jesus is saying, whatever your perception is on on perishing or or, or people dying and leaving this life into eternity, he says that unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And so I ask you the question this morning, have you repented of your sin? Have you come to a point in time in your life and you have turned away from sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus, He prescribes the remedy that you would not perish, and that is to repent. It's the word of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, it's not my word. It's not the the word of a church. It's his word. I wonder today, have you truly repented and turned to him? The third thing that we see in this passage is God's patience to the perishing. And we notice this in verses 6 to 9 in the parable that the Lord Jesus tells. Now, I, I, I could say so much in this parable, but that's something else. But... Just to bring out the context of it, to show God's patience, I want to say this. We can so often come to the parables of the Lord Jesus recorded in the Gospels, and we can so easily try to make the parables apply to ourselves. We so easily try to make the parables fit into today sometimes trying to make them fit in a, in a place that they ought not to be fitted. And, and when we do that, it can lead to confusion and many questions. And so in the parable of the fig tree, if you follow the interpretation through scripture, we find many times that the fig tree always symbolizes the nation Israel. It speaks of Israel. And so those accounts that are recorded of the Lord Jesus and coming across a fig tree. There was no coincidence. There was no accident about that. Rather the Lord Jesus was giving the nation an object lesson. At that time. And I could turn you to different passages. Mark chapter 11 verses 12 to 14. Time won't allow us to read them all. But, but if you read that passage. He very simply was pointing out the hypocrisy of the nation in that they they were religious and outwardly they looked like they should be people who have repented of sin and and turned and followed the the Lord God. But he points out that, yes, there might have been leaves on the tree. Outwardly it might have looked like there was life, but they were dead spiritually. There was no fruit. Again, we could go to Luke chapter 21 and verse Verses 29 to 33. And there again read about the fig tree in the parable. But there we find that that's in connection to Israel. And in the last days. But we notice in that passage that we see that the fig tree is planted within the vineyard. And so the vineyard points to the world. And what we see in these parables on are reminded is that God chose Israel to be a witness to Him within the vineyard of the world. But sadly, we know that they didn't meet that criteria. Sadly, so many times they sinned. They followed other gods. They they turned into to, to wicked practices and and lifestyles and. And therefore they, they didn't bring glory or witness to the Lord. Well, what am I trying to get at here? It's very simply we see God's patience even in dealing with the nation Israel. Because they're still a nation today. In the Old Testament you read of all our nations and we don't see or hear of them today. But we still read of Israel. And so we see that his patience is great. He is long suffering. He doesn't give up. And so let us then just not, we can't apply it fully to ourselves, as I've said, but we can picture God's patience. We notice that three years are mentioned in the parable there in verses six to nine. Three years is the time that it takes from planting the, the, the fig tree until it bears fruit. And that related to the the time Israel had the Lord Jesus, the promised Messiah, in their midst, preaching and ministering and pointing them to repentance. Sadly, they, they didn't listen. Sadly, they ignored. Sadly, they rejected. Many rejected the Lord Jesus. But before we start criticizing them, we have to look at our own day and age. What about the many nations, our own nations, who have the freedom to read the Bible, God's word, who have the freedom to listen in, to preaching from his word, who can read literature, who can have conversations with other Christians, believers. And yet, sadly, so many have rejected it. What did the owner want to do to the fig tree when it showed no signs of fruit after the three years when it should have? It says there, cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Remove it. Deal with it. Burn it. But we see God's patience in that he says, let it alone this year also. I dig around it and fertilize it. We need to move on as a lot I could say, but very simply, do you realize how patient God is with you? If you think about it, the first time you heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first time you heard the gospel and the call of it to turn in repentance to him, to trust him as your Savior, when you reject it, or or maybe you haven't and that's great, (laughs) but when you reject it, Christ to be your Savior, the first time you heard it, We would have had no excuse if God had said, remove. Take his life. Gone. I would have had no excuse. I heard the gospel from when I was knee high. Could understand. But it wasn't until I was 15 did I come to trust in the Lord Jesus. But you know, the first time I heard it and the call of it and to go home and to, to not even be able to sleep at night knowing that I should turn to him, but I continued to reject him, I would have had no excuse if God had removed me from this life because I had had the opportunity. But how patient he was with me and how patient he is with you. In that you still are having the opportunity to not only hear the gospel. But the opportunity to repent and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. Why is he patient? Why hasn't he just taken us out of the way and uh, and let us face the condemnation of our sin? Because as Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish. So that shows us that we are perishing with height doubt. Anyone who says, oh, we're all going to heaven. That's not part of God's word. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Anyone who says, well, oh, just say a wee prayer and that's it over. Repentance. To turn from is to turn to. To turn away a total change. And that is the call that comes from the gospel. And so as I close up. Today the Lord Jesus. Is challenging our perception. On what it is truly to perish. John Blanchard in his book. Does God Believe an Atheist?, said this. People need to be reminded that for all his achievements, man is not at the center of the universe, nor is he in ultimate control of any part of it. God often uses suffering of one kind or another to help people get their thinking straight, find a proper perspective, and arrange their priorities. In fact, Such disasters are early intimations of far worse to come at the final judgment. And so we need to realize it's not how we die or when we die, but we need to realize all die. And it's what happens after. And the Lord Jesus has prescribed himself to those who are perishing. That we are to repent and we are to turn to him. And here this morning as well. He has revealed the the patience of God the Father. Exodus chapter 33. Just read it to you as we close. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. As I live says the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? That was the call to the nation of Israel at that time through the prophet Ezekiel. Turn, turn. What's he calling on them to do? He's turned them to repent from their wickedness, from their evil ways. And I wonder, is the call coming to you this morning to turn, to stop going in the way that you are going, to realize that that way will lead to a a lost eternity. You will perish in that lake of fire. Is the call coming to you today to repent, to turn to Jesus, to trust in him, and to know what it is to be saved? To know what it is to be forgiven. To know there is no one like a a pardoning God like him. I trust that this morning as we listen to God's word, as we ponder on it, we are able to leave here this morning being able to say, I'm saved because I'm trusting in Jesus. Let's just pray before we close with our final hymn. Father, you know each one of us. We we cannot hide our sin, our, our hypocrisy maybe, or our rebellion from you. You know. Father, would you search the heart today? Would you draw to yourself those who have yet not repented of sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus? Pray that you will help them to realize the the need of it, the importance of it above all others, that they would no longer be those who are perishing, but know the power of God and know what it is to be saved and to be set on the way that leads to be in your presence for all eternity. Father, I pray that you will help those who are in this need this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.